You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. It's good to be with you. I I feel like I, you know, after this morning, I could just say, you know, amen and... uh, and be blessed enough to just go home. However, <laughs> I have been tasked with opening the Lord's Word this morning. Um, I did learn one thing this morning, and that is from Nikki, which is that there are times, I guess, when you're not supposed to say things that you shouldn't say. My wife's been trying to teach me that for a number of years, and as most of you know, I'm not so good at it. But uh, anyways... Just turn uh, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Stick your finger in there for a second. I wonder if you've ever met somebody who has so reflected the character of Christ and Jesus that it, that it, that it was like it shined out of their lives. Um, I've met a few. Um, a doctor, well, actually a couple of doctors that went to the church that I grew up in. Um, There was a couple in our church that, um, you know, many years ago, he taught me in Sunday school and uh, later on got Parkinson's and then, you know, passed away and uh, really what the world would consider a terrible death, but with joy and love for the Lord. His wife, who's in her 90s now, still prays for Ruth and I regularly. Um, you know, just people that really shine Christ out of their lives. There's just something really attractive about that. And, you know, this week as I was out on my bicycle, um, doing a little sermon prep, as I often do on my bike, I find it a great place to think. And I was remembering about a a young woman that was in a church that we grew up. I didn't really know her. I knew her family. I knew her parents. She was, uh, you you know, probably the age of my youngest daughter um, at the time, 10 or something like that. But later on, you know, heard that um, she had, you know, grown into a woman, got got married, had a career, was, was, you know, by all accounts, a, a beautiful person. Um, and she got stage three epithelial ovarian cancer. She was having trouble getting pregnant, went to the doctor. This is, this is what came out of it. And within two years, she was gone. But at the start of that journey, when she realized what, you know, the seriousness of it, she said, I'm going to, I'm just going to blog for you kind of the, in a, transparent and uh, way just kind of what we're going through and over the next number of years she chronicled this this journey of cancer and it was the beauty of Christ in her life was was stunning Um, and I went back this week and I read through it Um, she passed away in 2017 uh, and 
as I was reading it, I felt like I was standing on sacred ground. And I wanted to share some of it this morning, read some of her blog, a little bit of things, just to kind of give you a sense of, of that, that Christ-like character that, had, that God had developed in her life. Um, but I didn't feel like I could do that with, uh, without permission. Um, but you can read it. If you just go to your uh, Google search and type in Anchor of My Soul, you'll find her blog very close to the top. Her name was Julia Baer. Um, we're, we're a few weeks into our, into our sermon series entitled, What Does It Mean to Be Human? Today we're going to talk about what is the goal of humanity. So we're going to read from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verses 28 and 30, or just reading verses 28 and 30. Uh, And this is what it says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So verse 28 is is really a well-known, often quoted verse. In Christian, sir, you know, if you've if you've been around, you know, any length of time, in 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 the Christian world, no doubt somebody has quoted that to you or at you. <laughs> um, you know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And while this verse is profound in the in the context of of Romans chapter 8 it has a history of being poorly and mistakenly applied i'm sorry that you lost your job but we know that all things work together for good for those that love god you know wow that is a serious health diagnosis but we know that all things work together for good that those that love god you know, your husband cheated on you. Your wife left you. I understand the pain you're going through, but just remember, all things work together for good for those that love God. You know, how, how can I say this nicely? If this is your go-to verse for comforting people in, in times of trouble and pain, stop it. <laughs> it's not helpful. It's a Christianized version of what the world says when they're trying to make sense of stuff that doesn't make sense. You know, you're watching the talk show and the, and, you know, and the guys, you know, I had this difficult journey, but hey, everything happens for a reason. You know, it's like, this verse isn't meant to be an incantation that we, that we recite to each other in order to, you know, kind of make ourselves feel better. You know, amid difficulty and trial, it. It's not the way of trying to ward off bad mojo or, or negative thoughts or some, something to lift our spirits in the face of adversity. This verse, this verse can only be fully understood in the context of what follows it. 
Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed (coughs) into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In everything, God has a clear and defined purpose for his children. It's not some mystical plan that's just out of reach for us to understand. It's not just beyond our reasoning, kind of out there somewhere, something we can't quite get a handle on. God is at work in our lives specifically and purposefully. His plan is to conform us into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus, and in that process, bring glory to himself. We were made to glorify God by reflecting the image and character of Christ. Everything else, every other human achievement, no matter how noble, no matter how honorable, takes a back seat to this primary purpose for which we were created. Make no mistake, when when it comes to your life, God is on mission. There's no coincidences. There's no random occurrences. There's no, everything just happens for a reason, type of inexplicable events. Everything that God lovingly allows into our lives is to produce in us Christ-likeness. And in this, he's glorified. Now, you might be sitting there and saying, I'm sorry, Colin, what now? What about evil? What about when people suffer the evil done to them by others? It's happening all the time. It happens all the time. It's, It's a common occurrence in our world. Well, you know, I'll, I'll, really this is, a, this is a whole topic for a, for a sermon series. But for now, I want to just leave you with, with this thought. That God is not the originator of evil. God never ever condones evil acts or evil deeds perpetrated by one human against another. That is the work of Satan. These things come out of hell They don't come out of heaven. I want to be very clear on this, that God does not approve of sin. He doesn't appoint or commission or employ the use of evil to accomplish his will. However, God is the almighty creator of heaven and earth and has absolute power to overcome evil and to bring about a righteous result. God is powerful enough. God is sovereign enough. God is good enough to heal, to restore, to redeem the stories of those whose lives have been affected by evil. If you recall the story of of Joseph in Genesis and his brothers, they, they hate him and they... And they they take him and they they sell him as a slave. And off he goes. And it's like they're never going to see him again. They tell their father he was killed by a wild animal. But God redeems his life. And and, and he redeems Joseph through a series of God-ordained events. And Joseph rises to power in the court of Pharaoh. And later, he's able to provide relief and deliverance for those very same brothers in a time of extreme famine. Later on, when it's all said and done, and 
Joseph's reunited with his brothers. I think they probably are starting to feel a little bit, you know, troubled about the fact that Joseph's now like, you know, way up high in the government of Egypt and that he could really hurt them. They start worrying about revenge. Will he use his newfound power against us? I mean, he certainly could have, but listen to what Joseph says. He says, do not fear, for I am of the place of God. As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You know, one of my favorite books, and I used to have a friend who, who, who preached often, and he always say, you know, if you have to mortgage your house to buy a copy, do it, right? I would encourage you, if you have not read the book called The Hiding Place, read it. Get a copy and read it. Because it's the story of two middle-aged um, Dutch spinsters in Holland who, um, were, whose family were hiding Jews from the Nazis. And you know they were discovered, they were sent to a prisoner war camp run by the Nazis, a cruel, incredibly evil place. And all of the things that happened to them were incredibly evil. And yet out of that, the, the character and the love of Christ shone through these women in, in just amazing and miraculous ways. Only God can bring glory out of great evil. Only God can reverse the effects of sin and bring about Christ's likeness. No matter what the circumstances in your life are, God has his eye on you. And God has a goal for your life. God is establishing a people for his own possession and for his glory, a people who bear the image of Christ. And in order for us to kind of really catch the vision of, of what we're talking about here, we got to go back. Once again, we've done this a couple of times, but we got to go back into the, the, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and we got to look at the, the place where God creates man. That's Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. He says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And then again in the next verse, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You know, and as I looked at this this week, and I was, I was just struck how, how closely related this, this issue, this, this characteristic of, of image is related to Christ's likeness. You know the key uh, word. You know the key idea here lies in in that word image. And it's interesting when I started to study it. The the, the general um, scholarly thoughts about it are that historically it was really hard to figure out kind of what that meant because image is very rare in the Bible. It's it's used very rarely in the Bible, and um, you know, they, they just didn't have a lot of information about the language. And so over the centuries, there's been a, a lot of speculation and theories about what it means to be created in the image of God. And we have all kinds of things being put forward by, by godly men as well as, as you know, secular thinkers as well. But, um, you know, being created in the image of God means that you know that we're that man has the ability to create and to be creative as God is 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 the creator and creative. Man is like God in his ability to to possess reason and and wisdom and intelligence. Man is 
has freedom in the way that God has freedom in that they can act and be self-directed. God's image is seen in the morality that's possessed by man, the understanding of the difference between right and wrong. And all of these characteristics, they, 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 they do point to the image of God in a way. But it's not the whole story. It's not even the main story. The biblical scholars have continued to study and to understand Near Eastern language. And, you know, as the world gets smaller, right, and it's more information's at our fingertips, new uh, sources, new resources uh, have become available. We've, 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 we've come to a deeper understanding of what that word image means. There's something fundamentally different about the way that humans were made versus the rest of creation being created in the image of God as opposed to all of other creation which was created by God and for God but not in his image. Being created in the image of God makes man unique. And when God created man in his image, image he uniquely equipped man to have a relationship with him. Humans were not created to exist on their own. We weren't created to, to live lives for ourselves. And, and we certainly weren't created like that, you know, the wind-up toy. Does anybody use wind-up toy? You know, like I was thinking about that. It's like batteries. You know, I guess everything's battery. But, you know, the wind-up toy, right? It's like, you know, and you set it off and it, and it, and it moves and, 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 you know, and you don't worry about it anymore. God created people to reflect his 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 image and his glory through deep relational and personal connection to him. It's intrinsically part of who we are and what we were created to be. So apart from God, there is no purpose or significance. We were not made to live apart from our relationship from, with God. And it brings... And, and, and if we sort of bring this back into Romans chapter 8, it brings clarity because within the context, it's, it's within the context of that relationship that we grow into the image of Christ. You know, if you take away that unique um, image-bearing quality that God built into human, human beings, the ability to have a relationship, the 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 resemblance to Christ would be impossible to achieve. In other words, the more time spent in relationship with God, the more we move in the direction that God originally intended for humanity, which is to bring people uh, I'm sorry, which is to be a people who bring glory to God through a unique relationship that we hold and we enjoy with him. You know, the Westminster Catechism of Faith. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, unfortunately for, our, for us, although I'm sure that we would have traveled the same route given the same opportunity, but unfortunately for us, our parents, Adam and Eve, they weren't content to reflect the image and the glory of God. They kind of wanted to grab a little bit of that glory for themselves. 
And ever since then, man has been, has been engaged in the, in the elevation of self to the exclusion of God. And we see this when, you know, in the temptation, it says that, but when the serpent said to the woman, you, you surely, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that there was a tree uh, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate and she also gave it some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This desire to elevate themselves, to gain wisdom on their own, was an act of rebellion and disobedience against God. Sin entered into the world and it, and it ruined man's access to the direct and personal connection with God. That's the great tragedy of that rebellion is that, that it was the break in man's relationship with God. Sin marred our ability to relate to him in the deepest, purest, most intimate way. And that way was cut off. And it messed up that vertical relationship that man had with, with, with God, but it also messed up our horizontal relationships with each other. I mean, we see that in, God's, in Adam's response to God when God says to him, have you eaten of the tree which I, I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, ah, the woman, <laughs> the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. You know, and there you have it, folks. It's the first time anyone is ever thrown under the bus. Sin resulted in a broken relationship, both vertically and horizontally. And like it or not, down through history, all of humanity has, has inherited that rebellious nature. We inherited that rebellious nature from our first parents. We're as guilty as they were. Sin has despoiled the image of God in us and utterly ruined our ability to have a relationship with him and with each other. But the good news is that God knew about this all in advance. He knew what was going to happen. He made man to be able to choose and to have a free will. And he knew we were going to choose wrong. He already had a plan in place. We call this the foreknowledge of God. Adam and Eve's disobedience did not surprise God. It was, but it was the event that set God's plan into motion, the plan to restore that broken relationship through the work of Jesus. From the moment of, the re, of that rebellion all the way down through history until the appearing of Christ, all of heaven and earth was waiting in anticipation for the one who would reverse the curse of sin. God's plan was to deal with our rebellion and sin through the perfect and sinless life of Christ. Christ's perfection uniquely qualified him to pay a price for that and a sacrifice for that rebellion and that sin. He died on the cross bearing the penalty that we should that should have been ours. And on the third day God raised him from the dead. Everyone who by faith receives Jesus receives the forgiveness of sins. Once again, giving us that capacity for relationship with God. 
we're being restored back into God's original intention for us. Now, I hope you noticed that I didn't say that everyone who prays the sinner's prayer is saved. There's been a notion over, uh, in Christianity over the last 50 years, last half century or so, maybe a little bit longer. I'm trying to think. Uh, yeah, mid-1900s. That if you pray the sinner's prayer, you'll be saved. Salvation does not come by saying the right things or by praying appropriately pre-appointed words. Salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit when our hearts and our minds are opened to the reality of who Christ is. We see the truth about ourselves, that we're sinners, fallen, rebellious before a holy God, and that Jesus is our only hope for salvation And that by placing our faith and our hope in him, we are made right with God, both in this life and the next. And I would would urge you not to play a dangerous game with your eternal security by foolishly thinking that simply because you prayed a prayer, you're saved. You know, well, that's looked after got my place, got my ticket to heaven, got my place to go, you know, everything's cool. And I'm sure that there's someone here, or maybe more than one, who are thinking to themselves, wait a minute, buddy, you're out on a really thin branch here. Who is to say who's saved and who isn't? But I can tell you over the years, I've seen a number of people who've prayed that prayer and never shown the slightest indication that Christ has done a work in their life, then the Bible is pretty clear on it. You know, I would refer you to the the words of Jesus. Jesus taught that on the final day, there are going to be those who are mistaken about what salvation is. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, 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 will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The will of the Father is that, that by faith we receive Christ. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, salvation isn't something that we do. It's a gift from God to those who come to him through faith in Jesus. Grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. When a person is truly saved... Something miraculous happens. Prior to salvation, the Bible describes our condition as dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But when we're saved, we're made alive in Christ says this in Ephesians as well, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead 
in our trespasses and sin. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Salvation changes everything. We come alive to a brand new relationship with the Lord and once again becoming what we were created to be, image bearers. There's a new reality and we're given a new outlook and new desires. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Well, what, what is the essence of this, of this new creation? Well, I would refer you back to Romans 8 and 29, that when you are saved, God's preordained plan is set in motion, the process of changing you from what you were into the perfect reflection and character and image of Christ. And out of that process, the beauty of Christ begins to shine out of your life. The gospel isn't praying, just praying a prayer to secure a place in heaven. The gospel is a transformational process. It starts by faith here on earth and it ends with the most amazing reality when when we become face-to-face with Christ and we're ultimately transformed completely into his image. This this transformational process which which begins here in our lives as as, as soon as we're saved, as soon as salvation comes to us, it begins right away. It authenticates our faith. You know, probably most of you who are all younger than me, um, you know, do your banking online. You know, and you get that message. I'm going to, you know, the bank's going to send you a, a, an authentication code. They're going to send it to your phone, which you type in when, when you sign in at the bank. And, and they know it's you. Our love... And our desire to be transformed by Christ is part of the authentication process. It authenticates our faith. It says whether our faith is genuine. And there's qualities that, 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 that we have, many qualities. Just read your Bible. You know, I encourage you. There's lots there about being conformed into the image of Christ. I just want to leave you with two things that would authenticate our faith in Christ. First is we have a genuine love for Jesus. And secondly, that there's a desire in our hearts for Christ-like character. Our love for Jesus, our desire to walk with him, it authenticates our faith. It, 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 it demonstrates that we have genuine saving faith. Philippians chapter 1 sums this up very beautifully. I'm doing a study with some of the guys here at church, and, and I was looking at this this week, and I thought, yeah, that just, that just so fits with what we're saying here. Paul prays a prayer over the, over the church in Philippi, and he says this, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of the Father. It starts with love, and it ends with a desire for Christ-likeness. You may recall, you know, 
sort of to emphasize this, this, this thought that, that our love for Christ would, would grow. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with, the, with the, the, the story of Jesus when he was at the uh, house of Simon the Pharisee. And this woman comes in and she breaks a bottle of perfume and pours it on his feet. And she's crying and washing the Lord's feet with, with her tears. And Simon, who is you know, very self-righteous, of course, you know, really understands things about God. He says, if this man was a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. I, I take that to mean she was a prostitute. <laughs> don't have any empirical evidence, but she was known to be a sinner. And this is what Jesus says to him. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who's forgiven little, loves little. One of the characteristics of genuine, authentic salvation is that we love the Lord because he has forgiven us, because he has forgiven us much. And Paul says that may your love abound more and more. which leads us into a genuine desire to be near Jesus and to be in relationship with him. And then he goes on to say, with all knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. First comes our love for the Lord. Second comes our desire for Christ-like character to reflect his glory and be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to be pure and blameless for the day when we see him face to face to be transformed what we are now on a journey to be ultimately transformed when we see him. I think if we actually saw what we would become in Christ, if we actually saw what we would become in Christ, we would have such a greater desire than we do right now to bear the image and beauty of Christ because once we see him, we will be transformed once and all into the perfect image of Christ. It's going to, you know, everything is going to change. And it's all going to be made right. I'll leave you with the words of the Apostle John who said, See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us that it did not know him, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, 
but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we recognize that we're on this journey of transformation that began at salvation. Lord, we want to bear the image of Christ. We want to have the beauty that comes out of our lives, that comes only through relationship with Jesus. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to, to, to be proper image bearers? Because we know that that's what you created us to be. We know that that's your plan and your purpose for our lives, that we would be conformed into the image of Christ. We know that out of that will come joy and peace and beauty and all of those things that we see in the Lord Jesus. Lord, would you put in our hearts a desire for Christ and a desire for Christ-likeness. We pray this in your name. Amen.